No, I know, but I feel feel bad for the people that have to oh, listen yeah. to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, God. Okay. All right. I made it tiny now. Okay. So we're recording. I think. Um, it's giving me blue lines like I'm alive. So welcome to Secondhand Stories. I'm your host, Jim Zabo. And I'm your new and improved loud co-host, Colleen Stewart. (laughs) You were always loud. That's true. (laughs) Except now I'm extremely loud. Now I have a microphone. (laughs) In our week-long break, we got Colleen a microphone. So you're welcome, everybody. Yeah, you're welcome, and I'm sorry at the same yeah, time. Yeah, both, both at the same time. Um, real quick, we actually missed a... Uh, so we did a lot of um, patting ourselves on the back a couple weeks ago, as everybody knows. Um, but we actually missed one author's um, statement about secondhand stories. So I'm going to read that now. Um, it's from Warren Rochelle, who is the author of Feathers from episode 14. And he says, I tell my students that they are all storytellers, that part of being a human is to be a storyteller. We are homo narrans. As Walter Fisher argues in Human Communication as Narration, telling stories, using narration to make sense of and to interpret human experience is essential to being human. I also tell them that part of their revision process should be to read their work out loud. They need to hear their words, their sentences, their stories. They need to hear what works and what doesn't. They need to learn that reading their work out loud is part of giving their words meaning and is a way of interpreting their words to their audience. So when I saw Jim's email, dutifully passed along, announcing the launch of Secondhand Stories, how could I not send him a story? What was it like to hear my story, Feathers, out loud? Pretty cool. I feel like Jim got it, even with all the swan noises, and he respected the story <laughs> and the characters. Thank you. I think the format works. As I write this, I'm wondering if a visual of some kind might be added. Maybe. But then this is all about voice, about listening. Happy first anniversary. I'm pleased to be a part of SHS's inaugural year. Well done. Y'all done good. Oh, thanks, Warren. And thank you for making me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) I tried really hard with those swan noises. That was amazing. Oh, that episode was great. Yeah. Oh, that was such a good story. I'm just remembering that story now when he, it was the guy who like was a swan Mm -hmm. and then he was like pretending to not be a swan. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, that was such a good story. Well, they were like hiding. That. that one actually made me sad. I yeah. really got really invested in that one. The like guy who found the other guy like was yeah, hiding from yeah. him that he was this one. But what Warren said is true, though. I mean, he's right. Like we're all storytellers. I mean, what do we what do we all do? Like, what do I do when I come to your house and hang out with your family? I just like tell stories, and like, it's not in the traditional like once upon a time da da da, but like. It's so this it's one a time sharing of experience. I... Yeah. So this one time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you all just look at me like I'm like insane, but no, but it's like that's exactly what it is and it's it's sharing experience and I think whether that be whether it be fiction or not, like you're still learning and and experiencing things. I think that's important. All right. So today we have um Justin Volsky's story called Black Jacket Mafia. Um, I don't want to say too much about the story before we really get into it. It's a sad story. We told you all the stories in September are going to be sad. Sorry about that. Um, Green Day people, listen to some Green Day Green and then Day listen we'll to our podcast. Um, so we'll, Justin narrated a story for us, so we're going to hear that now. I lay there feeling scared, like there are eyes on me everywhere, drifting untethered in some dimensionless space. The air is cold, but it's really just the floor. 
I hang up the phone and slide it back in my pocket. I'm lying on porcelain tiles in the middle of a lobby in a Ramada in Jerusalem, wearing sweatpants and a t-shirt with a native beer logo on it. A boot steps past me. I hear the feet stop walking and turn around. There's a voice. It's my name. I sit up. He must see that my eyes are red. He must. He comes and sits on the stairs next to me. Nice shirt. How you doing? We'd both bought that same souvenir shirt that day during our lunch break after we hiked the mountain. He was the second one to the top. I was the first. Okay. Who were you on the phone with? Home. Things doing okay? A moment. It was bad news. A moment. Well, I hope things get better for you. He slaps my back and stands up. He is bigger than me and it actually hurts. I wait until he can't see and start massaging the spot on my back. It is the day before New Year's Eve, and me and 30 others from my university are in Jerusalem together. Some men 70 years ago decided it was our birthright. Um, don't worry about me. I'm good at compartmentalizing. I miss you too. I'll see you when I get home. This is the last string of phrases I give before I hang up the phone. My mother's sister told me stories about Greek mythology when I was young. I was fascinated but struggled with the overlap, the redundancies I perceived in their positions. They like to compartmentalize their gods, my aunt told me. I didn't know what that meant. They divided each concept into many specific sections, and each little section had a god. My aunt made me understand the underworld as both a conceptual and literal place for believers. Hades rules the realm. He is king. He governs the ghosts that live in the underworld. The ghosts are not ruled by death itself. Death itself is an entity called Thanatos. We get the word euthanasia from Greek meaning good death. However, Thanatos himself is broad and he has his own sections. I didn't understand. They are the two ways of death, blessed and violent. Makaria, attributed as a daughter of Hades, princess of the underworld, is blessed death. Death without suffering, without pain. Mercy. In the other corner are the Kyries, ravenous female death spirits descended from the goddess of the night. They are violent death. I didn't understand. Do you remember what happened to your grandparents? To my parents? To your mom's parents? I remembered visiting grandma in the hospital every day until she died in her sleep. Mercy, my aunt said. Makaria, the princess. I didn't learn what happened to my grandfather for some time. In the hotel lobby, I try to put it out of my mind. I still have three more days in Israel. Hades rules the dead, but not death itself. Death isn't concerned with the dead. Death is only concerned with the living, the ones with music and love in their eyes, the ones with breath and passion in their heart. I leave the lobby. The elevators feel smaller on the way up and find my conglomeration of accepted folk that had accumulated in the last couple days within our larger group. They are playing cards in a room with an open door, while some others lay on a cot at the foot of the two beds. I sit at a small table in the corner and play with a spare deck. I play music out loud until, without noticing, it gets sad and slow, and somebody tells me to turn it off. I turn it off and go back to my room and don't bother turning off the lights or taking my clothes off or getting beneath the blankets. I instead think of the mountain. On the mountain, the sky was blue. It soared overhead and came crashing down into the horizon miles away. 
Where the sky met the earth, it looked as though the force of the landing caused mountains to grow, and the dust clouds from the impact were the actual clouds. It was all so large. The night before I'd been driven to JFK to make my way to Ben Gurion, I walked into the supermarket. I knew that a few things were going to happen. I knew I would see people there. I knew they would vary in shapes and sizes and ages. I'd see people I knew. I knew there'd be kids I'd went to school with that hadn't left or were also home for the winter, stationed behind the registers, wishing they were just there to pick up some groceries for their mothers. It was my last night at home before I left for my trip and my family returned from their separate vacation. We'd be passing ships, a phrase my mother liked to use too much. I was there getting her groceries. She needed some things to make her special breakfast Christmas morning that I'd be missing. Cinnamon rolls, matzah, eggs, fat-free milk. I picked it all up. There was this couple I walked past. They were short. She was really short. He was average, I guess. Shorter than me, though. His hair danced between blonde and gray that I knew came from nothing other than extended exposure to chlorinated water. He wore glasses. Hey! I put my basket down and shook his hand. Have you been? Hello. The girl smiled and regarded me. I knew her, too. She was a year younger than us. You home for winter break? He asked after a couple beats of nothing. That would make sense, yeah. I'm leaving tomorrow, though. Vacation, kinda. I'm shopping for my family now. We're passing ships. I gagged in my head. He gave me this look with one of his eyebrows almost raised, and I remembered that odd string of details and clauses I passed off as conversation less than a second ago. He nodded slowly, though. Man, how long has it been? Since that meet last year, right? Yeah, yeah. That was winter break, too. It might be exactly a year. That's pretty funny. He gave his laugh, short and to the point. It wasn't a mystery when he was amused. How are you guys doing? I was surprised they were still together but I wasn't going to say anything about it. I guess it made me happy for them, I don't know. I hadn't seen them in so long. They said they were doing well. I said, Have you seen anybody else from the team since you've been home? We didn't have much else to talk about. Nah, nah, I haven't. We should all meet up. Show up at a practice or a meet or something, like last year. Yeah, let me know when you get back. I said I would and nodded in salutation. I used to see him every night at practice for four years of high school. That was the first time I'd seen Eric Hockey in over a year, and we spoke for a few minutes in a grocery store. We didn't talk about anything, but he was there, and so was I. The morning after the phone call on the porcelain floor, I had an excuse for my lack of expression. A massive triangular prism impaling a cliffside, its name is Yad Vashem. This is the Hebrew name for the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Jerusalem. Composed of five Hebrew letters, Yad Vashem contains two two-letter words for hand and name, as well as the single-letter preposition meaning and. To me, this meant the perfect union of the universe, the hand, the body, the corporeal, the earth, the solid, the name, the mind, the incorporeal, the heavens, the ethereal. It is a place where we meet history, where memory meets experience. I am wrong, though. Biblically, the two-letter word meaning hand also means designated area or just place, 
It is a place for names, honoring Yad Vashem's mission to recover and record all of the six million names. A few of our group cry, which is fine. There is no correct reaction, our guide kept telling us on the bus. I am already numbed and removed. There is a photograph, black and white from World War II, a candid of Nazi top brass. They walk towards the camera. Each have their eyes going different directions, to the floor, to the sky, to each other. Hitler isn't in the center, but everybody knows what he looks like. They all wear their long jackets and caps, and in the background is the Eiffel Tower. I stand right in front of the picture, looking at Hitler's face. I tried to comprehend this photograph actually taking place, that maybe the men in this picture did exist even though I'll never be sure. The fact that my history is reality to others is a concept I still struggle with. Are these stories? I've never been to Paris. I'm to believe this actually happened. People say Hitler was evil. He changed the world. He has more of a legacy than I ever will. I want to touch his face. I don't know why. I reach my hand up to the photograph. I stick out a single finger barreling forward. I stop. There is a scratch, a single line, from his forehead to his chin. Somebody with their nail or a paper clip or a thumbtack had scratched his face. At that moment, I step back. I feel somebody standing where my feet are. I feel everybody else in this museum here for similar reasons for being part of a persecuted heritage that nobody can seem to kill off. I feel a part of something. It makes me sick. My mind retreats to the mountain. Up there, the air was different. Sure, it still swirled and danced up my nose and down my throat the same, but there you could really feel how blue it was. The wind blew gently, and I felt the heavens breathe on the back of my neck and drag their fingers through my hair. There is this kid on my trip, Lou, who must have felt connected in the museum, a part of it all. He is sobbing. My grandpa! Is all I hear him say, thanks to his long and large drags of oxygen and my attention span for things concerning Lou. He mumbles more about his grandfather. Apparently, he survived it, or maybe he didn't. I'm not listening. Either way, this place is special to him. The Jewish thread in my family was stateside before 1900. My great-grandma was born here in 1904. I liked to joke she was as old as Canada Dry. She made it to 103, outliving her son. I can only share an immoral sadness. I feel no personal attachment here. My grandfather died before I ever got the chance to meet him. It was simple, really. He was one of many victims in a serial murder's killing spree throughout the city he lived in at the time. I think it was Newark. That was the Kiris, the violent death, that my mother told my aunt not to share with me. It's what I forced out of my mother months later. It was completely random. It could have been anyone in the city. His violent death was nothing special. It could have happened to anyone. Lou feels big in here. He feels a tug in his asshole pulling him deeper into the building. The death of Lou's grandfather makes Lou feel more connected. I don't like that feeling. That's why I'm the first one to summit the mountains we visit. I couldn't wait to feel small. There's a segment of a cobblestone street that is ripped directly from Auschwitz or Warsaw, and I walk around it. I don't step on those stones. I am afraid. The last room we go into is for the children, the victims. 
There are mirrors everywhere, casting an illusion, reflecting the light of a few candles stationed around the room, making them seem infinite. I have to stare at my feet to keep myself moving, to stay on the path, to not get stuck in the funhouse. Catabasis complete. We emerge back into daylight. There is a balcony and a valley before us, but it is raining. The girls take their pictures and the boys do too. Another group comes up behind us and swarms around. They are notably cheery for such a place. That's not English, one of my group says of the way they spoke. Not Hebrew. It's Portuguese. It's Spanish. And so it is. I really only notice the girls of the group. They giggle and take their pictures together. They wear tight pants and it is okay. Contours are in the right places beneath their unzipped rain jackets. All their hair is brown. It is simple. They seem completely detached from what lay within, and I almost smile. They ask one of my friends to take a picture of them all together. He smiles and complies. They take pictures with him, too. Good for him. They're from Argentina. That's a little inappropriate. Why? That conspiracy theory. Hitler fled to Argentina after the war. I thought that was true. Oh, well, even more so, then. My dream scares me awake on the bus back to the hotel that evening. I am in the last row, sitting in the middle. One of those big coach buses, perfect for us entitled middle-class college kids. I sit with my eyelids still lowered and thoughts of the mountain. I'd never been that high up before. I'd never seen that much of the earth in my field of vision at once outside of airplanes. My heavy breathing from the climb up was calmed by the blue sky entering my lungs and the mountain air slowly licking the sweat away. I slithered both my arms out of the straps of my backpack and dropped it to the dirt behind me. I felt the blue wash over my back and straighten my posture. The bus jumps up and down and my eyelids flicker and slowly open up. What about you? Do you have any stories you want to tell? A girl to my left asks me. A strap hangs from her shoulder and she wears too much makeup. She is huddled in a little group with people in the row before us. Maybe she thought I was listening the whole time. About what? Girls, boys, relationships, big ones. Do you have any? Oh. I clear my throat a little just because I've been sleeping and sit up for my reclined position. Everyone's got one, especially at our age. Everyone has at least one good story. Mine was named Lucy. I tell them the rest of the story. It's a different story, not this story. Well, glad everything worked out. Moments pass. What's your major? One asks me. I hadn't spoken much about myself at the beginning of the trip. I decided to humor them. English writing. I wait for the stifled laughter. You like to write? It doesn't come. I almost smile, but I don't. I like to write, I say. Like stories? Books? I nod. I almost smile, but I don't. Are you writing something now? I'm reworking something. I just figured out what the title actually means in a dream, so I'm changing the story. A dream just now? Yeah. What's it called? Black Jacket Mafia. They nodded. I didn't know they were waiting for more, but I gave them more anyway. I just like how it sounded. Almost all the vowels are the same. It's this legendary secret club from my high school that my friends used to joke about. It's really stupid. But you're changing it, right? Yeah. Well, I dreamt that my friends from high school, all scattered across the country after going to college, all suddenly have to come home. 
when we see each other again, we are wearing black jackets. So it's about that now. I don't think she understands. Attention! Our group leader has a microphone connected to speakers all over the bus. She announces that the entire Birthright program is hosting a large-scale social event for New Year's Eve. Dozens of groups, just like ours. Hundreds of young American tourists in a hotel party venue near Jerusalem. It would be great. A fine distraction. Soon we are at the hotel, and there is my conglomeration of the accepted folk. We have showered and dressed. I look disheveled at best. I hadn't fixed my hair after drying it. We have beers and liquor we'd bought at the market and snuck into the hotel, but the girls want the wine. We don't have an opener, so we try a number of DIY methods, but nothing works. We stick a pen in the cork to try to remove it, to no avail. I managed to stick the pen the whole way through, so in removing the pen, we would have a hole through the cork to the wine. The pen becomes stuck, though. I am engrossed in figuring this out. A friend of mine is very determined to give his New Year's kiss hopeful what she wants, and I decide to help him out. He comes with me to a different room to open the bottle once and for all. I call him Pat Matrick. That isn't really his name, but it's close, so I called him that, because I like the assonance. We take turns trying to remove the pen from the cork, but we only break the plastic and get ink on our hands. None into the wine, though. You know, anyone could have just taken a hammer to the stone. I think that, but I don't say it. It is too pretentious and he may not understand. I have no idea his familiarity with Arthurian legend. We need to shatter it, I say out loud. We take turns holding it by the neck and smashing it against the tile wall in the bathroom and the handrail in the shower, but nothing. We are taking a break when we think about giving up. He doesn't want to, but we can't break it. We don't use our entire strength out of fear for shrapnel and noise everywhere. I try one last time, a different way. I hold the bottom and smash the curved part just before the neck on the lip of the sink and it shatters right away. There is a small hole in the top that we widen by using scissors to manipulate the shattered pieces around it. We pour most of the wine into a plastic bottle and return to the other room. Pat gives his girl some of the wine, but nobody else seems to care. They didn't notice we left. I return to my spot in the corner. My mission accomplished, the phone call creeps back up on me. I try to engage externally, to push away the internal strife. I turn to these people laughing and drinking in front of me. And the mountain. At the summit, I inhaled. I inhaled as much of the blue, blue sky as I could in a single breath and felt every cell in my body tingle in anticipation. I ejected a single syllable as loud as I could shaking my body and emptying my lungs. I screamed to the mountains and to the water and listened as my voice dissolved into the sky, never reaching the ground far below. This night will be the last time I'll have fun in a while. I have a parade on a sinking ship. I take the plastic bottle of wine and wash it down with some beer and crackers. Later, I cough violently in the elevator on the way down. Every day I thank the Jewish God I don't look like a classic Jew. I guess I deserved it. I didn't practice very often, and my hometown was named after a Roman emperor who never had a pleasant relationship with the Jews. We step off of our bus, and our bucket is poured into a large lake. Our group of forty could be easily lost in the almost thousand-person ballroom that is this New Year's Eve party. 
It is comforting. The silence is obliterated and replaced by basic electronic melodies and a sensation that vibrates my chest every half second on beat. The alcohol helps hormones bubble to the surface, and we do what we do. I let out my steam and shouted song lyrics and sweat from dancing. No matter where I look, piercing through the crowd, I see this one shirt. No matter when shoulders or elbows smash me and spin me around, there is a shirt in the crowd that catches my eye. It is a deep red. Red like you wouldn't be able to see blood on it. The large kid from the hotel lobby is there with us because he is also in my group. He is enjoying himself. It makes me smile that everyone else is enjoying themselves. He puts his arm around me when we are jumping and slaps my chest with his free hand. This is great! I don't want to go home! And his voice and his slap and his mention of going home jerk my mind and I start to cry. I start to cry for what I had yet to cry about. I don't let anyone see me. I throw his arm off of me and turn and walk away through the inundation of perspiration. I thought about how there was no Greek deity for random death. There was mercy and violence, but nothing of chance. I always thought that was just because it was the worst kind, the one that comes from nowhere. I now instead thought of fate. I remember every other time I had cried, how the heat in my chest and the swelling of my eyes was the same every time. My jaw always quivers. I can't speak. I remember how out of nowhere I see Eric Hockey at that supermarket. I spin around, but the crowd is like an ocean I'm too far out in. I can't tell which is the way I need to go. It had to have been a coincidence. He lived near the supermarket, but after a year of nothing, why all of a sudden? Why do I see him there that night of all nights? Why right then, right before I leave, right before he... I know I figured it out. When I can't tell between the tears and the sweat on my face, there is too much of both. The mountain. I go back to the mountain. The atmosphere permeated my system. I stood listening. I could hear nothing save my breath and my heartbeat. Meanwhile, the earth lay sprawled beneath me. I smiled and felt blood coursing through my veins. I couldn't fathom the size of the earth with my voice or my breath or my sight, and I was content in understanding the futility of lapping up the ocean or sponging away the horizon. I loved knowing how small I was. The mountain is gone when red flashes in my periphery. Before me stands a hay-haired boy, shorter than me, in a blood-red shirt wearing glasses. His shoulder had smashed past mine. And of course I know it isn't Eric Hawkey, but the coincidence of it all and how there may be no coincidence scares the shit out of me. I extend my arm tipped with a clenched fist straight through the kid's face. I've imagined throwing my first punch before. I always imagined holding back, even a little bit. But right then I am aiming for the people that stand behind him. His glasses shatter and his nose bleeds onto his shirt, but you can't see it. He stumbles back, but I grab his collar and stick another fist into his gut. It is soft and mushy, and I feel the bottom of his ribs on my thumb. He coughs. He spits blood on me. It smells and tastes like my own, because of course it does, but I'd never imagined it. Everything was a blurring of red. My eyes can't detect light properly with so much salt water in them. The tears keep coming out. They pour out, and I become a giant, crushing mountains with my steps rather than myself standing on top of them. I step on cobblestone and feel the victims who had also stepped there. I saw Eric Hockey that night for a very specific reason, and I no longer feel random. I no longer feel small, and my frustration comes out in knuckles.
When my mom finally told me about my grandfather's murder, I asked her why such a thing happened. Why did that man act the way he did? This was before drink and drug for me, before the bubble had burst. I was young. She said it didn't matter. Some men are breastfed with darker milk, which was her own grandmother's racist way of saying, some men are raised wrong. It wasn't his fault. It could have happened to anyone. This is what stops me from resisting when my friends turn and see me and hold me back by my arms and my neck. I am still screaming and crying, but my body relaxes. I look down at the poor kid sitting in the middle of the dance floor and I think of my grandfather. I think of his murderer looking down on him, both of them there completely by chance. It could have happened to anyone. That was the silver lining. My favorite part of the story my mother told me about my grandfather's death and his murderer. It could have happened to anyone. I don't kiss anybody that New Year's, but I did break my first nose and rib as I'd come to find out. I am taken away by my trip leaders before the ball drops. I listen to it outside in the cold and the dark and the rain. There is a strict no-nonsense policy for this trip. Even though there are only three days left, I am to be sent home the next morning. My trip leader sits outside on the steps with me as I try cleaning the snot and the tears up. She asks me what happened. I laugh. I am still not sober. I swear to God the devil made me do it. This is a song lyric I'd always wanted to say out loud, but it is also a jab at her. She'd always injected too much religion into the tours for my comfort, while I came only for the history and the views. Anything to stimulate my sense of insignificance. I wipe my smile away with some mucus. In 12 hours, I'm on a plane to Vienna, where I then connect to John fucking Kennedy Airport. I lose my security deposit and have to pay for the tickets home, but I am impressed at how efficiently they eject me from the country. I am going back to New Jersey. As I eat stale bread and a microwave chicken lunch, I let myself admit that maybe that's exactly what I'd wanted. I am still scared. I hadn't seen Eric Hawkey in a year, and then all of a sudden he's there. I hated that I knew why. There was no Greek god of random death. But this, seeing Eric Hawkey in a supermarket while I'm out buying matzah, was like the universe turning to me and nodding, acknowledging my existence. I cough on the dry meal and smash the summoning button for some water from the flight attendant. Rubber burns and I can see a woman crying in front of me. The plane slows down. Nothing is wrong, but this woman holds her child close and her terror turns into happiness. When we stop, I stand with a craned neck, half in the aisle, half in my seat. I collect my backpack from below me and grab my duffel from above when it is my turn to leave. I give the steward a nice thank you, and I'm on my way. My family is waiting outside the international terminal. Despite both circumstances, they are still happy to see me. My dad takes my duffel bag and I walk with my brother and sister. I tell them I'd tell all the stories and show all the pictures later. We embark on the hour plus drive back home. I am waiting until my mom can't make small talk anymore. You won't have time to shower when we get home before we have to leave again. I figured, it's better than no time at all. I smile, but she doesn't. I just don't get it. This doesn't sound like you at all. A fight? Why? Did you do it on purpose to come home today? My father asks, interrupting. I tell him I don't know. Eric Hawkey collapsed while coaching the swim team he worked for when he came home for winter break. 
He died from unknown causes later that night at a hospital. The next morning, nighttime in Israel. I sat in the lobby of a Ramada in Jerusalem, combing for Wi-Fi. My mother called and told me what happened. But you are still in Israel. Try to enjoy these last days of your trip, my mother encouraged after breaking the news. Um, don't worry about me. Are you okay? I'm good at compartmentalizing. I miss you, honey. Somebody just like her had just lost her son. I miss you, too. I'll see you when I get home. The doctors told Eric's mom it was probably some anomalous thing. I didn't respond. It could have happened to anyone. I hung up the phone. I get changed when I get home. My dog is happy to see me and doesn't leave me alone, but of course she has no idea what's going on. I put on pants and a shirt. I thread a belt and tie a tie. I grab a jacket that matched everything else. It is black. We drive in silence to the part of the town that is near the supermarket. We walk in and sign the guest book. It is crowded. Most of my graduating class is there. I see my friends from high school, the kids I ate lunch with every day. We hug, rubbing each other's black jackets together. The line slowly moves forward and I see pictures of Eric Hockey all over the room. They are meticulously assembled with love and passion. It is nice to see. I shake Eric Hockey's father's hand and I hug his mother. I'd seen them at countless swim meets but never like this. She thanks my family and I for coming. I am crying but I still try to talk to her. I was so fortunate to have run into Eric out of nowhere at the supermarket before I left. We caught up for a couple of minutes. I'm so sorry. I hugged her again. I'm happy you got that moment with him. She is genuinely smiling, which is why I start crying more when I have to lie to her. My knuckles are still red. So am I. My name is Justin Volsky, and I am currently studying English writing at the University of Pittsburgh. Writing is a hobby and passion of mine. I've been telling stories since I was very young. While I dream of being a prolific sci-fi or fantasy writer, the stories I seem to be able to finish are shorter ones grounded in reality. Writing to me is words. Words playing with each other, off each other, pleasing and provoking the mind. I love telling stories, crafting worlds, and entertaining. Freaking sad. I mean, this one kind of hits home for, I think, me, but both of us. I mean, like, we, I don't know. I mean, we lost someone like that. Yeah, so I, when I first read the story, um, I definitely thought that this was a suicide, um, that Eric Cocky committed suicide. Um, it was because of the line. Um, it had to be, it had to have been a coincidence he lived near the supermarket, but after a year of nothing, why all of a sudden, why do I see him there that night of all nights? Why right then, right before I leave, right before he, and that like cutoff made me think that like right before he committed suicide. But um, after reading it more than once, um, they later say that he just collapsed and then died from unknown causes. I kind of backed away from that, um, that thought a little bit. Um but I don't know. What did you think of that? Um, no, I agree with you. I mean, it's not the same thing by any means. And I'm not trying to like pit people's experiences against one another and like say they're the same or different or whatever. But um, 
it just, I mean, it just reminded me of that because, I mean, we were swimmers and yeah, the, the, like it, it allowed me to get into the story easier because I knew I just, I just kind of could picture that. You know what I mean? Yeah. The whole thing. Like in the, yeah. Like I can just like, like when he said he collapsed on deck, like what's the first thing I thought of the community center pool deck? Like that's like, it just right. could just because that's what's familiar to me. I mean, if it was another swimmer, they probably would have thought of something else, but like, that's what comes to my mind. Mm-hmm. But, um, no, I mean, it's, I, I, I thought it was done well, and I think it really I, – I mean, I can relate to that experience too. Like, you're home for the holidays. You're back from college. You're in, like, your old hometown, like, sleeping in your old bed from when you were younger. And you go to the supermarket, and you know you're going to see people. Like, it's inevitable. Yeah. And you're, like, kind of mixed feelings, like, whether you do want to see them or not. And then when you do, you're like, do I – like, am I, you know – excited am am i weirded out am i just want to keep walking i wish i could just ignore them or maybe it's great to see them and you i mean i have that i've had that experience a million times over and it's and you kind of it kind of brings back that idea of like when you're not in this in a certain place you kind of not in the nicest way possible forget about the people that were in that place and and like or even think that like well they're since you're not there like their lives stop but that's not true like their lives keep going and things happen to those people, whether they be good or bad. And, and when you find out, it's kind of like, wait, what? Like, they're not there and they're not in the same – they don't look the same. They're not, you know, at the same places and doing the same thing. Like, this happened to them. And that – I think it kind of – he captured that really well. Like, the kind of, like, you know, it's you, – you don't really know how to describe the feeling, but it, you, everyone has it. Like, I can guarantee that every single one of our listeners has had this experience for sure. Yeah. Everything that you were just describing – um, I've like, you know, everybody's been back to their hometown after graduation, or even if you stayed in your hometown, like, you know, you're going to see people coming back and you're probably not going to want to see some of those people come back. Um, so you can kind of see it from the other way too. Um, I think what really stood out to me about the story was how, not necessarily how descriptive it was, but just how good some of the descriptors were. Like, um, like you said, you could totally place yourself in, in all these different spots in your life and based on your experience, but there were some really, I thought some really choice lines that he had, um, particularly in the fight scene, which, you know, I'm not really a big violence person, but, um, the lines I'm aiming for the people that stand behind him and he spits blood on me. It smells and tastes like my own because of course it does. Like, just things like that. I don't know. I thought that, like, he had a really mm-hmm. good way of, of putting a lot of things. That I don't know. Well, I love the that he notices the shirt is the same color as the blood. Like, yeah. he knows it's not going to show through. And, like, it's just good, such good foreshadowing of, like, what he, what's going to happen. Like, even though it's, like, in, in two lines later. But, I mean, going off of that, I really enjoyed the, the spots where he's um, – describing like where he what he feels like to be on the mountain and like i mean i've i have that feeling too i mean i where i live now in new york it's like there's mountains everywhere and like it's there's some feeling that you get when you're up there and just like you feel small but not in a bad way it's like you feel kind of just i don't know and he captures what i what i tried what i'm what i think kind of in the same way like you're on this mountain and you feel so insignificant but not in the worst way possible, like, like, you can almost fade into the background, but it doesn't matter because, like, these things are almost, like, protecting you. It's, like, these giant, just, you just can't even imagine how big they are, like, mountains are just kind of engulfing you in their enormity, and it's just, like, 
it's I don't know it it's I guess it's that kind of same thing when people always say when they go to the ocean and they feel small and like or you know but not in a bad way it's never like I feel small and like you know yeah I think like I don't know it's he gets very I mean for a story that you know only really has a couple of plot points it's like very deep and he goes into a lot of philosophical things without actually being like he he uses the different places and and thoughts and like actions that he t- this his character takes and like really puts you in a philosophical spot. Yeah, I think um I think all not necessarily stories about death but all like experiences with death we all kind of try to figure out what our place in the world is like you know it's kind of like meaning of life stuff where you know you're just kind of trying to figure out why you're here, what's going on and that's what I really liked about all that mountain stuff because it seemed like he was he was thinking very much about like fate and the universe and and all that kind of stuff, which um, just kind of like your place in the world, which I thought was was really interesting and it, and just really accurate. Like that's what you think about when someone close to you or not close to you dies. Like he was talking a lot about the you know Greek random death, like that. That was really really interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, and he was also talking about his grandfather too. Yeah, yeah, that whole theme which, was really cool. Yeah, like kind of like random death, but death is never never random. Is that kind of like how he was? I think that's what I got from it, but maybe I'm not seeing. I it was right. I was more pulling out the like it could have happened to anyone part of that, where like you know the grandfather was just somebody who happened to be killed by the serial killer, and like our narrator just so happened to be someone who saw Eric Hockey at the grocery store, and like whatever happened to Eric, like just so happened to happen to him and the person that um, the narrator picks out at the dance just is random. Like that could have happened to anyone. He could have picked anybody to, you know, to take out his anger on. So um, I don't think the death part is as important there. It's just the random of, you know, the universe is kind of random and, you know, is, is our fate predetermined or do we have free will and like, how do we control what happens to us or all that kind of stuff? Oh hell not. Fate it's I don't think I don't think that's true. I think fate has a huge a huge draw on it. I think there's there's some force out there pulling strings. I mean, to a certain extent we're responsible for what we do and for the actions that we take and those they have consequences, but when there's things that happen in this world that I see like not even like in my life, but just in a greater like sense of like the world the nation and the world like there's some senseless horrible things that happen to people for no fucking reason and i can and i don't think anyone could ever explain why they happen they just do and you know the religious kind of people say well it's god wanted this this way and there's a, they have a path for them and this and that and you know the atheists say that that's the whatever the world working in the way that it works and god knows what whoever else like has their reasons for why it happens but it happens and that's it like yeah. you know and i i mean i don't know what you think i think free wills you have free free will up to a point and then after after a certain point you know something's out there pulling strings yeah i mean like i'm not a particularly religious person but there are things that happen where they just seem too coincidental to be like an accident i guess mm-hmm. um and I like I don't have any specific examples, but I just know like things pop up every once in a while and it just like it makes it seem like there's like you said, there's somebody out there, there's something out there 
not necessarily pulling the strings, but just kind of seeing if you're paying attention. Like, mm, if you look like for those better. things, then yeah, they're like... out there. But, I mean, if they mean something well, to you, like, not everybody takes meaning from, you know, from random coincidental events. So, true. Sometimes I just, you think it's just like there, you meet people for a reason and people are in your life for a reason. And, like, well, I mean, the main character, you know, Eric, it was in his life for a reason. And, and there, there was a reason he punched this kid, and there's a reason he got kicked out of it, and there's a reason he had to go back to his funeral. And he, I don't even think he knows why, but he did, and he, I think he felt that. And, and you know, the actions, like, he took, I don't think he really understands him himself, but there was a reason he had to be back there. Yeah, I... And, like, the, oh. he had that dream, right? The dream about the black jackets. Was that was a dream? Yeah, so that, I wanted yeah. to, I definitely wanted to get into that, because I think, I guess, I don't know, I... I took the view that he planned on getting himself kicked out and like getting back in time, but that's not really like, it just seems so obvious that it has to be true, but it's not like, there's no way that he would know that his flight would get in like just in time so that he could like shower and get dressed and go like that. That timing was too mm-hmm. perfect for that to be pre-planned on his part, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just thought he was so clever. Like, it ended up being so clever. Like you imagine, you know, he wakes up from his dream and he talks about how, you know, he just reworked his story and it's like, like the, even the title, like Black Jacket Mafia, you think, oh, it's a bunch of high schoolers who like just got drunk and watched The Godfather. And now he <laughs> wants to write a story about, you know, how they all come back together and beat up the bullies or something. But it's really so much deeper than that and, and so much more meaningful. And I really like that a lot. I did too. And I didn't, honestly, it took me a couple times reading it to like actually get like black jacket because they're at a funeral. I was like, yeah. oh, f- shit, that's why. I, I kind of, I got it, but I didn't. And I was just, I kind of almost like breezed over it. But then I was like, wait, that's why they're wearing black jackets. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm assuming people who like clicked on this episode, they're like, hmm, we're going to get like a mafia story. Like it's going to be a sad, you know, somebody's going to get shot at the end or you know something someone's gonna have a horse head in their bed right exactly no. um but it's it's something totally different and that's kind of that was one of the things that initially drew me to the story was i just thought that that was really clever and and like why the title was so meaningful was just was very clever mm-hmm. i agree i definitely agree um also side note these boys do not know how to open a wine bottle that those girls were swallowing <laughs> glass for sure <laughs> But it was a good story overall. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, that was good. Um, so we want to thank Justin for sending us that story and for narrating it for us. Um, want to thank Colleen again, of course, for hosting with me. Um, oh, Jim. Want to thank everybody for all the positive feedback we got on our one-year anniversary episode. Um, we had a lot mm-hmm. of fun doing that, and maybe we'll incorporate some more authors' voices into our episodes at some point. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, could be fun. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah, just keep slowing down and listening up with us. Um, we'll be back next week with another story. Um, I probably be- a sad one. Probably. It will be a sad one, I think, from Lisa Heidel. <laughs> we'll see. Oh, super contributor, Lisa. Yep. Um, so Sick. tune back in next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye, everyone.